Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Y'all, today I've got a conversation for you with my friend and repeat podcast guest, Lisa Mullinax, a certified dog behavior consultant. Lisa owns and operates Serenity Canine in Washington State. She has been working with families and their dogs for over 20 years, and we sat down to talk about what it means to live with exceptionally challenging dogs and what that brings to your skill set as a professional. Enjoy. Listeners, if you know any dog trainers or if you are a dog trainer, you're familiar with this cliche of how we all got into the business, which is that we had a dog that was rough. (laughs) We had a dog that had problems. And because of that, we learned more than we ever hoped to about dog behavior. And then a lot of us became dog trainers. And my friend Lisa is not different. (laughs) So Lisa, will you share? Well, first of all, Lisa, I know that Simon is far from being your first dog. Simon is your current dog. Correct. And in a lot of ways, he's more difficult than the dog that made you a trainer, who I think a lot of people, if they knew kind of what your first dog's behaviors looked like, like on paper, they would think, oh, wow, that's a big deal. That's really scary. Some big aggression stuff. Yeah. And then actually Simon, who probably people listening to this have dogs that are a little bit like Simon. Right. Simon's the tough one. Simon is a tough one. I mean, on paper, like you said, like Mac was the 80-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback mix who bit someone badly enough that it sent them to the emergency room and they had to have more than one plastic surgery. Simon is a 35-pound cattle dog mix who is hyper-social with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you compare those two things and Mac immediately sounds more difficult, but he was probably 10 times easier than Simon. And, you know, I think, I think the, the primary reason is because Mac's motivation was to avoid people. And as long as we avoided people, everything was easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Simon's motivation is to get closer to absolutely everyone he sees and maybe and, fall into their mouth and down their throat and, <laughs> their body. and live there. Yeah. And even in sitting in their stomach, that's not close enough. <laughs> and, and the challenge, I mean, Simon has, has many challenges, but, you know, in addition to being hypersocial, he has a very, very low tolerance for frustration. And although he is a cattle dog mix, he is also 25% blue tick coonhound and so when he has feelings everyone knows it and it's extremely loud so when you couple a hypersocial dog with a low tolerance for frustration who then barks and scream barks loudly when he sees a person much much more difficult than an 80 pound uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback mix who just is happy to walk away (laughs) Yeah, and then also just living with him, even when people aren't there, just like your day-to-day with Simon, also harder than your day-to-day with Mac. Oh, Mac was so easy to live with. I mean, he was low-key at home. If Simon doesn't get a really good off-leash run at least every couple of days, um, he is doing hard laps through my uh, living room. He is scream barking at me. He is, um, he's improved as he's matured, but he was jumping at me. He was grabbing, grabbing me, grabbing my hands. Um, Yeah. And keeping up with that is definitely challenging. He's, he also really struggled when you mentioned the low frustration tolerance, you're a clean, good trainer. You're not inducing frustration on purpose. He 
has a hard time he's a lot better than he used to be but he also just has a hard time with training like trying to actually just teach him some skills in and yes. of itself yes for you a trained and skilled professional i mean if you were in a normal person's hands good luck because it, he's hard enough for you to train he had me in tears yeah. i mean he had me in tears as you know he had me questioning my abilities as a trainer you know I'll, I'll never forget the first time like i had been you know during lockdown with the pandemic and trying to do some training sessions with home and with him at home and and not getting anywhere and then the first time going back in to work at the shelter and grabbing a shelter dog pulling them out of the kennel and working on a behavior it was like a hot knife through butter and we're like, oh, yeah, we're the <laughs> that's exactly what it was. I'm like, okay, okay. Oh, I needed this. Man, I needed this because it was, yes, it was the reality check I needed that Simon is not your typical dog. And, and so just being able to focus on the basics. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I sent you videos, <laughs> like those, um, it was extremely challenging. And so just getting through the basic training that my previous dog, my border collie had, you know, completed at like nine months old, he had all of these things down, we hadn't even touched with Simon. Because you were just still drowning. And it was, it was really challenging. And because of your previous dog, being so re relatively easy to train, especially to teach those behaviors too. Yeah. Um, what a huge shift in expectations. For sure. And that's something we're going to keep circling back to is what it can do for a dog behavior professional to have a very real expectation, you know, reality check. Yeah. Because so often we are kind of has a profession, I don't know if I should say this out loud, an out <laughs> us to, to the world, but I think as a profession, we are really controlling and really, really motivated and reinforced by making big changes. Oh, yeah. Clients for their dogs, like there is nothing, I'm like, yeah, drugs are great, but have you ever seen a reactive dog choose not to? <laughs> right <laughs> the videos that we share with each other right, right. i'm like check this out do you see that moment at 2.45 in this video <laughs> and then we all just collectively <laughs> hit that and get high i mean this yep. is, this is yep. how we are so then having simon and feeling like you're not getting there no so frustrating and so you had to you really had to have a major shift. And two of the words that are coming to mind for me are, as far as you as a professional, are empathy and experience. And we certainly don't need to suffer this much to have empathy for our clients. <laughs> right. But it doesn't hurt. I mean, to have empathy for those people who are experiencing something similar, it helps if you've kind of been there. Absolutely. And, you know, before I got Simon, I would you know, I considered myself a pretty experienced trainer. I had been training for 18 years at that point, and I've seen a lot, and I've seen a lot of different behaviors and handle a lot of different dogs. And, you know, Simon just really, he presented a challenge that I had not experienced myself before. And I have a very strong feeling that I did have clients who were experiencing this, mm -hmm. but because A, he's friendly, he's not aggressive, you know, or fearful, he's, he's not presenting a behavior that looks serious. And uh, it, so I may have looked at that you know, I'm thinking back to when I used to teach to group classes and a dog like Simon would have been so excited anytime the instructor walked by. And if they came by with treats or they came by to show him attention, he would have been so responsive and I would not have existed. And 
I would not have seen that as a problem with the dog. Back then, I probably would have seen that as a problem with the handler. Oh, which is that response, which we have all the time. That is not an empathic response. No, not at all. It's not about shifting your perspective into, well, this dog's obviously a problem. It's (laughs) shifting your perspective into, oh, wow, okay, how can I help? Right. Rather than how can I fix? How can I control? How can I change? How can I help? Right. Yeah. Like the the fix we would have done 20 years ago. I mean, what would we have said if we saw these dogs in class and they seemed out of control and they seemed to have not as much interest in their owners as they did in everyone else? We would have said, that's a a relationship problem. You got a relationship problem. You need to do more leadership exercises and, you know, no petting them when they ask for it. They have to sit first or they have to do, you know, nothing in life is free. Absolutely. We would have done that. We would have, and it, it really would have been, well, this person needs to step up and be the leader in this relationship. Absolutely. Right. That would have been our focus. And if someone said that to me with Simon now, they would lose my respect completely. <laughs> I'm like, would this trainer because, uh, you know, you have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Yeah. <laughs> what if you sent me one of those videos of you training him in the early days that made you literally cry? Yeah. And I said, well, Lisa really looks like you need to step into a leadership role here. Yeah. Your relationship is really damaged. Yes. I had said that to you. That would have closed the door on all these amazing conversations that you and I have had about this dog and about dog behavior since. Yes. Yes. And our clients are the same. When we say things to them like, you're not enough of a leader. Right. First of all, all they're hearing is you're not enough. Right. And what they already feel that way. Like if they called you, they are struggling. Yes. People don't want to hire dog trainers. I wish they did. Like I wish it was really standard practice for everybody, but it isn't. You call them when you've got a big enough problem that you can't solve it yourself. Right. And so you're already in a vulnerable place. And then to tell them that they're not enough of a leader when also just sidebar, that's total bullshit and no one's going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) Sidebar, besides the fact that it's insulting and not nice. Yeah, we're going to play these mental games coming at this from a completely different angle. It has absolutely nothing to do with what you're experiencing in the moment, but that's going to magically fix it, right? Right, right. Right. So you're able to really look at these situations with these dogs who are just kind of these wound super tight, bouncing off the walls types of individuals right? who tend to be some of the hardest dogs people to live with day in day out like you mentioned dogs got stranger directed aggression okay you don't take them to any crowded places you don't let people try to pet them and if you're having friends over we're going to teach him that he can hang out in the laundry room with a bone and be solid like that is really different from from the time we wake up to the time that we go to bed he is a pinball in my house right and as well as all the idiosyncrasies that always come with these dogs like Simon is one of the more interesting dogs I know. And if you know anything about me and my history of dogs, like that is actually saying a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But he has a lot of interests that are weird. He has a lot, like he just is different. And he, his interests become, I mean, they're very important to him. (laughs) Like if you, he's got this blanket that's really important to him. And if it's, what did you post the other day? The blank, like the corner of the blanket was under something or something. So like he couldn't. Oh get yeah. The Whoopi was stuck. Yeah. yeah. The is the blanket. The Whoopi was stuck. And he like kept telling you that there was an emergency situation. Yeah. Until you realized that the Whoopi was stuck. And like these dogs always come with those things. And if you right. haven't lived with a dog like that, you might not know that they also have all these little, these little weird things. And you might, the, the regular average pet owner might not also recognize it the way that you recognize it. 
Right. So helping them recognize it might even help them like their dog better or appreciate their dog a little more because they're kind of funny and kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to the average person, you know, like maybe a family member who comes over who's not a dog trainer, Simon just looks like an out of control, untrained dog. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure that for a lot of dog owners, you know, whether that's how they see their dog or they experience that embarrassment because that's how other people are looking at them, even if they themselves recognize that there is something off with their dog, something that is is not, (laughs) right? We say all the time that Simon is not neurotypical. No, he's, yeah, he's not. Whatever it is, it's, yeah, it's different. You said a word there, embarrassed, because, and I think that's a really important thing to kind of come back to that sometimes these dog owners come to us and their motivation is this dog embarrasses me. Yes. And having empathy for that rather than judgment on that, you know, I think so often dog trainers are like, oh, you know, it's just a dog. Like you don't need to be embarrassed. Like, right. It's just normal dog behavior. And, right. You know, we can fix it and it's okay. Right. Like what a better way to come back to and say like, yeah, I so get that. Like my dog does this thing and it embarrasses me for sure. And then we can all just go, okay, we've all felt that feeling here in yes. this room. And yes. now let's get to the other side of it. It's, I mean, that embarrassment is like, it, it is accompanied by so many other emotions, right? Some people, when they get embarrassed because their dogs do that, then they get angry. Totally. Embarrassment is a weird emotion that tends to spike others, like always as a cascade into other emotions. Anger is really frequently it. Oh yeah. And for sure. And I have, I have experienced that many times with Simon, whether it's embarrassment followed by frustration, embarrassment followed by exasperation, embarrassment followed by anger. You know, if my therapist wanted me to work on regulating my emotions, <laughs> like Simon is a little walking emotion regulation um, exercise. So, you know, having experienced that and, and learning how to temper that um, so that I'm not causing harm to him because certainly with all of his challenges if I do anything that's going to increase his stress in those situations in the future I'm not going to be happier with the result and right and that's not a good quality of life for him but also experiencing that and experiencing it recently it has been extremely helpful in working with my clients you know, we don't have to have a therapy session about it, but we can talk about it and we can help them prepare for it in those situations. Yeah. And this is where, um, Hey, maybe we, as trainers, maybe one of the questions we should ask is like, how does it make you feel when that happens? Right. I feel like we don't ask that because we don't want to put on a hat. That's not our hat. Like the therapist hat is not the appropriate hat for us to wear. Right. Just asking someone how they feel is not therapy. That's not therapizing them. No. It could really help you to help them respond better. Right. Or sometimes I will just ask rather than, and how does that make you feel? Because that feels very like, that feels really therapizing to me. Um, (laughs) Very cliche therapizing term, right? Just saying, you know, why do you think you respond that way when that happens? Right. Causing that little self-reflection for them. Or I'll just say like, Hey, does that, does that make you nervous when that happens? Right. Does that, does that that embarrass you? Does that freak you out? Like getting there on that level with them. And then the rapport building piece of you being able to say, you know, my dog Simon has a lot of these struggles. And so, and I have been, you know, around trainers and seen him, you know, leap and scream bark because he couldn't control himself for a minute. And like, that was really embarrassing to me. So I fully get this. If this is embarrassing right. to you, yeah. And like I, I want to help you. And I think that that lets us be better professionals. As opposed to 
the client says, well, when he does that, I just jerk on the leash a couple times to get him moving. And then us jumping in and saying, well, you know, if you do that, that can cause negative associations. Right. And right. Like rather than telling them they're wrong. What is your motivation <laughs> for doing that? And right. let me make sure that I meet that need for you a different way. Mm-hmm. If I want my client yes. to stop doing something, I cannot hint just like with dogs. I cannot just say, stop doing that. Right. I have to say, I have to look at the motivation behind what they're doing and I have to meet that need another way. It's exactly, it's all behavior change is the same. Yes. And you coming to the table with this empathy. Right. Which I think Simon, I mean, I think you were, you were a compassionate empath, like empathetic person before Simon, but now Simon, it's <laughs> just <throwing> you. <laughs> really into the deep end of really understanding because you were a person like with Park or your border collie like you were a person with a well-trained dog you were a person with a really nice well-trained dog that you could take anywhere literally into a china shop I have to yeah (laughs) literally into a china shop like you could take this dog anywhere you could do anything with him he was lovely and you now have Simon oh man it's a bit of like an ego check isn't it Oh, 100%. When my dog acts a certain way, it's an ego check for sure. You know, I mean, especially being in this industry for as long as we have, we started at a time when it was all about ego and it was all, your dog was a reflection of you and they had to be perfectly well behaved. There were all these expectations. That ego check and shifting my expectations for who, Simon could be as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the trainer's dog, which is what Parker was. Parker yeah. worked, you know, he assisted me in classes. He assisted me in private lessons, working with reactive dogs. Like he was a reflection of me as a trainer and having to let that go with Simon, I will say no one in my apartment complex knows I'm a trainer. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really advertising that. However. You know, I live in a pretty small complex and am pretty familiar with a lot of the people that live around here. And many of the, you know, the people I'm friendly with outside, they are recognizing the shifts in Simon. They do see me out working with him every day. I don't go on a single walk without my bait bag. I am constantly reinforcing behavior and they see that and they are starting to notice little shifts in him and they're pointing it out like, oh, that was really good. He looked at you, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. They don't know what you do for a living. They're like, look, he yeah. didn't scream that time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I have let my ego go. I am not out there representing myself as a trainer. I am just out there being the best advocate and support system for Simon that I can so that he can learn these pieces and, you know, he's not suffering because of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was a big piece I had to let go and that was really, really hard for sure. It is. And then the shift as a professional, do you feel like you also used to look at your professional cases more like, okay, how many skills can we get this dog? Oh, yeah. And you're not looking at it like that now. No, I mean, yeah, 10 years ago, I wrote the most beautiful training plans for my clients and we were going to do all the things, right? And we were going to do all of that. Living with Simon, where my expectations have shifted is, you know, that first, the first year of his life, we primarily only worked on two behaviors, (laughs) his recall and getting attention around distractions. And you've seen his recall. I've messed it up a a little bit recently, but he has a very, very strong recall, probably the strongest of any dog I've ever had. And um, handy because of a major need that he has. Yes, because if he could not get a good off leash run, he was going to kill me in my sleep. I was was going to say, (laughs) you would need to lock up the knife drawer. (laughs) Oh man, yeah, yeah. Like he, he'd wipe us all out. So yeah, he had to be reliable off leash. And so I worked on that and I worked on that a lot and capturing attention around distractions. I mean, we certainly 
we're still working on that. But those were primarily the two things I focused on. I mean, he was a year old and he didn't even know, he didn't even have a sit cue. Like we weren't even focusing on that. So I, with him, I discovered I needed to focus on two or three things at a time and just get them very, very strong. Two or three things done well, as opposed to Parker's first year where he had like 10 to 12 behaviors that were trained adequately, right? Because <laughs> they didn't have to be perfect at that point in his life. And, and so I found when working with clients as well, instead of creating these incredibly pretty training plans based on, you know, whatever the latest thing was that I learned at a conference or a webinar and, you know, all the sexy stuff that we really like as trainers that weren't realistic for our clients. You know, I'm, I'm focusing on helping them, you know, identifying a couple of behaviors that can be, that we can train really well and can get them very strong and they are reliable in the situations that they they need them to be. And so simplifying that as opposed to going with the pretty sexy stuff. And so with your clientele, I would imagine this allows you to be a lot more effective. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and then your needs are met as the trainer who wants to see big changes. Like it's yes. kind of like how when we meet the dog's needs, our needs do get met. Yes. It's it's like when we look at training in this much more, just kind of strip it down what's actually necessary. What are the practical strategies that we need rather than these big, gorgeous training plans? Right. When we strip it all down, we do actually see the results. Right. We do. Right. Because we're not throwing something new at the client every, every session. Now work on this. Now work on this. Now work on this. It's you've gotten to this point. Okay. Now we're going to shift it and we're going to make it harder this way. And we're just going to get really, really, really good at this piece. And so obviously you shifted your perspective. You've been able to bring even more empathy to the table. What about, what does having a dog like this do for your rapport building with clients? Cause I really find that for me, like my strategy of getting started with a client a lot of times starts with just rapport building, which I certainly learned from my psych degree, from the classes I took on counseling. Like when you go into counseling, that is the first thing that happens is the rapport building piece. So what does this do for your rapport building? Like how much do you share about Simon? Because there's a little part of you that would want to lie. Like there's a little part of you that doesn't want them to know you don't have problems. (laughs) If not, right, that's the ego, right? Like right. That ego doesn't want them to know that your dogs have problems. No, there's that part of you that wants to prove to them that you are such an exceptional trainer that you have cured these problems. And, <laughs> but you know, I think that You're like, well, my dog used to. <laughs> right. Blah blah blah. Right now, he only does it when people look at him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it's well, and it does a couple of things. For one, I try to be much more open about setting expectations from the get go, not just for, you know, for the overall, right, the, you know, my dog has snapped at the last three people he's met, but I've always wanted to um, do therapy work with dogs. I want my dog to be a therapy dog, right? We're all used to kind of setting those expectations. Right. But, you know, it has, it's helped me have more honest conversations about those expectations, which I find builds more trust with the client. Mm. You know, it's, it's like you were saying, you know, earlier today, the, the time we have those clients that, you know, you've taken your full history, you've been working with them, you've been doing a whole lot. And then you're like four sessions in, and then they finally open up and tell you about something. It's actually really significant, but they were nervous to tell you before, whether because they thought you were going to judge them. Right. Almost all of my clients that I find out something later that I would have liked to know upfront, that they needed time to trust me to tell me. Yes. And I think if we 
make ourselves a little a little more vulnerable in being honest about our own struggles when it's you know when it's relevant to them i think they they feel more comfortable opening up about mistakes they've made or times that they've gotten really frustrated and you know yelled at the dog to just stop barking <laughs> right yeah. and you know for me to be able to say like look i get it i you know i've had that happen to me with simon there are times you hit that limit and you may raise your voice or do something that you would not normally do as a positive trainer mm -hmm. but that i recognize that's my stress levels yeah. going over a threshold right we are as susceptible to it as our dogs and also recognizing like that was an expression of my stress. That was not me attempting to train the dog. And, you know, I, I have to, you know, when we talk about expectations, there's the big expectations, but I've found in those situations, I kind of have to re do a reset for myself, either on a daily basis or even on an hourly basis. Like, okay, you lost it. You lost your temper. You yelled, you know, knock it off or whatever it was. And that doesn't mean you are a terrible person and you don't love your dog and you're not a positive trainer anymore. It means, whoa, that was too much. Yeah. Let's figure out what we can do to, you know, calm things down. Do I need to grab a Kong and throw him in his crate for a minute and I go for a walk or, you know, yeah. what do I do? And now the next interaction we have, I need to reset. I, what am I going to do differently how can I set him up to be successful? And, you know, being perfect all the time is not realistic. Mm -hmm. It's not realistic for us and it's not realistic for our clients. And I think being able to, to empathize with them and to let them know that we are human as well. You know, I, I do think that goes a long way in building that trust and building that relationship with them so that we can have honest conversations that will get us to the right answers. I think that's so important. And I think one of the things that we've kind of kept coming back to here is that this isn't going to be perfect. So I feel like we're talking about like shifting our expectations away from perfection and into just more just practicality, like just what antecedent changes are going to help the person no longer engage in the behaviors that we want them to shift. Yeah. And then what are the practical strategies that we can apply to also help them have some easy wins right away? Because we know that they need that too. Right. And I right. think, you know, one of the, something that you and I have talked about before is that's also different Simon versus Parker is that with Parker, you had a dog trainer life where you'd see some clients and then you'd have <laughs> a lot of time to walk Parker. And it was one thing. And then up until recently with Simon, you were doing shelter work. And so you were gone for, you know, nine or 10 hours at a time. And you didn't, yeah. you also um, didn't have any like emotional bandwidth to deal with him. And that actually makes your experience then more like most of your clients' experiences. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Simon is, challenging but I'll tell you what he's less challenging he was less challenging on the weekend when I could go take him out um, you know for a two-hour off-leash walk right his decompression walks and things like that yeah those were the easy days the hard days was when you know I got up he got a potty walk in the morning I went to work and it was an incredibly stressful day and I was you know almost always working overtime and then I would come home and that's, you know, the time of day that we're winding down. We're exhausted. We want to like, you know, kick back on the couch, you know, eat our takeout and yep. veg out on Netflix until it's time to go to bed. And here I've got this adolescent dog who's vibrating with energy mm -hmm. and desperately needing my time and my energy and, and my attention. And you know, I, I'm pretty sure I thought I was, I was giving clients practical, practical plans before, but after living that myself, that full time, no energy, 
you know, it's not about the perfect training plan you can do on the weekend. It's about the training and management plan that you can do on the day you come home with a terrible headache and you, dinner's not ready and you do not, you don't have the weather or the daylight or the energy to take the dog out and meet their needs. Yeah. And just saying, okay, well, here's the practical solutions to that. And right. giving everybody grace in that scenario. Right. That's been a big one for me. Just knowing, yes. that, you know, just having, it actually causes me like, this is probably a whole other episode. Like I probably should really do a deep dive on this, but it causes me a lot of stress to have my dogs have not a great day. Yeah. It makes me feel really like fulfilled and relaxed to know that all of their needs have been met for today. Yeah. And sometimes it just isn't possible. And in fact, in my life currently, it's just not possible most of the time. And it's really something to just give myself the same kind of grace that I would give a client in a similar situation to me and just say, they're going to make it and they're going to be all right. And here are, you know, you know how to hit some easy buttons. Yes. Like yes. wrapping a bully stick in a brown paper bag yes. is an easy button. Yes. <laughs> that you can push, <laughs> right? Absolutely. You, you know that my dog, like, you know, things are not going well if my dogs are like getting a little chubby. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> We're doing lots of food-based enrichment and not a lot of decompression walks, and that is like right now. Um, that sounds like that sounds like me during COVID, right? I was just gonna say it also might be me, and I'm just putting it on them. Like we're all chubby, it's all fine. The pandemic pounds, um, and it yeah. is. It's really important to know that like all of that's okay here, right? And. And that kind of brings me to something too that you helped me with a lot. And, you know, it was a little over a year ago that I met with my wonderful behavior vet and, you know, she walked into the house and five minutes into meeting Simon, she said, oh yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to do some meds. <laughs> she was like... <laughs> So let's talk about the types of drugs that we can yeah. that we can use because I got ideas for you. <laughs> right. And like, you know, I, I'd been thinking about it. I'd been talking about it. But typically, you, you know, if you meet Simon and you look at him, you don't say, this is a dog that needs anti-anxiety meds. This is a dog that needs, like, he's not showing fear. He's not showing anxiety. He's not showing aggression. And so he doesn't fit that profile. But as it turns out, those aren't our only options. And, you know, she prescribed a situational medication that really targeted his, his inability to regulate his arousal. And it was night and day. And it was, you know, everything got better or easier. I should say everything got easier. Everything I mean, got easier, which is all the meds are supposed to do. Right. Like, and no, that's yeah. not a cure, but like, and how amazing for you now to have had that experience yourself. So that if you are maybe having this conversation with clients, right. You can say, Hey, I have a dog on meds. Yes. Cause they yes. all have not... failures when you say yeah. maybe meds. I mean, it's, it actually surprises me that when people are still averse to meds, because I'm like, aren't we all on drugs? This is 2022. <laughs> right, right. But you know, the perception is still drugging the dog. The perception, right? I just I just heard this from a client just the other day is, well, I don't really want, that, want her to be drugged. Cool, neither do I. We're on the same page. Right, <laughs> right. right. So talking and then getting those, that, those right veterinary people on team, like yeah. the, veterinary team yes. on board so that that isn't what's happening the dog isn't drugged it's just right. everything feels just a little bit easier that's all and I think what people mean by drugged is sedated that is what right. they mean and we're we don't want that either no I mean no. sometimes and maybe we do <laughs> sometimes we do <laughs> well seriously yes in a general that sense, that's, not, that's not what we mean right but, you know, one of the things that you helped me with was, you know, yes, 
when I would give him his, when I would give Simon his meds, like we were going on the, we were taking a ferry ride. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I gave him meds before we got on the ferry because before he would be in the car barking his full head off because it was so exciting. We're in a new place and there's people walking by that he really wants to say hi to and he can't say hi to them. And, you know, it was just extreme. And so what a weird thing to be honest, to be on a ferry as a dog. Right. All the smells, all the, you know, everything. And, you know, like all of our training sessions got easier, including on the ferry, like you He's now able to go out on the ferry and be out on the the front deck where people are coming by and he's, you know, it's amazing. It's a huge shift for him. But then getting myself to the place too, that this particular medication, I could also give him on days that I just wasn't able to meet his exercise needs. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't to sedate him or drug him, it just helped him regulate his arousal levels and he wasn't experiencing those high levels of stress and frustration and so our our shorter walk around the neighborhood were sufficient with that aid yeah and and having that experience whereas you know I think before if I saw a dog like Simon I'd say well I don't think we'd need meds yet Right. Really, you'd just, be like, hey, you know, if you want to talk to a behaviorist, you can, but I think we can get a lot done on yeah. our own, right? Yeah. And especially yeah. now, I mean, getting into a behaviorist is not that easy. So it's, yeah, especially now. And so it's one of those things. But now that you have this experience under your belt, yes, you are better able to say to people, you know, actually, it really might help. Yeah. Actually, here are these practical strategies. Like, let's find the easy buttons that we can find because living with this dog is not, is, is hard. There aren't, right. there don't seem to be easy buttons. Right. And I think so often the dog training profession can be a little judgy, a little, well, what, what? well, what do you have? I know. So surprising. <sighs> well, what do you have this dog for? Like, why, why do you, why did you get this? Right. Like, right. Like, how's you can't you look at it it looks like a cattle dog like you got it from the shelter you thought that was fine for you and you got it from the shelter like right jokes knowing on you. that you work this on you, and, yeah. cattle dog, but a coon hound too <laughs> jokes <laughs> on you it's even better um the tr- like we do that like we we go oh this person's got you know a whatever yeah so you know maybe give that person the benefit of the doubt and go okay they're trying they yeah. want better and when you give yeah. them those easy wins, they're more interested in the harder one wins that you can also give them. Right. And right. And I think, you know, too, there's those times like with Simon that we've discussed, like what what would have happened to him in the average home? These yeah. are the struggles he's having in the home of a professional trainer. Yeah. Uh, you know, a professional trainer who has been brought to tears by from the exasperation and frustration of living with him. What would have happened to him in the average home? And, you know, I think that you're right. I think, you know, how many times have we as trainers said, oh man, you know, my client, they've got this X breed, right? High drive, what we call high drive breeds in an apartment on the fifth floor in, you know, downtown, (laughs) you know, downtown whatever city and you know uh like yeah we can we can be like oh these people they don't know anything or we can be like oh these people what would I do and they they didn't know how am I going to help them yes again it's that shift into how can I help yes this is a dog yes would it be easier on us as trainers for the dog to be in a perfect home absolutely but that is the home the dog has right that moment yeah. And these are the people who are committed enough to the dog to pay not a small amount of money right. to hire us to come in and help them find a solution. And, you know, what I what I didn't say about, you know, living with Simon that that first year I was here in Seattle, I was in an apartment, a one bedroom apartment on the fifth floor that required a long walk down a hallway into an elevator out through a parking so garage far from being in a situation <laughs> for Simon like you were in that situation it was, yeah 
And the only place to walk in was an outdoor shopping center full of people. Like, and this was the point that he had very, very little training under his belt. And so, yeah. Because he was still making you cry in every training session. And it's this, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that like, we have a job because dogs don't live in ideal situations. That's right. If dogs did live in ideal situations, like I just recorded with our friend Marissa talking about the dogs in Peru right. who were so balanced and fine because they're living in their ideal dog situation, right? Yes. And versus, you know, we we have a job because dogs live in fifth floor apartments and they're a yes. And dog, like that is actually the reality. And yes. you coming from a shelter background, I think we can all say that like, even a not ideal home, a, a, a really far from ideal home, but a home that's willing yeah. to put resources into the dog yeah, is already a better situation than so many of the dogs. Yeah. And I'll right? tell you what, the, the people who live, right. In the shelter who were really challenging, tough cases, but if they had a person, if they were owned, it's a completely yes. different bottle wax all of them all of the behavior i mean that was so much more than what you can do when they're in the system yeah yeah and here's here's the thing you know and i think i i already kind of knew this but i think simon really brought home brought this home for me living in a not ideal situation with simon and having to take him out three times a day four times a day for bathroom breaks in this terrible situation you know what it did it it had me doing training sessions four times a day and by the time I moved out of that apartment complex he was walking around that outdoor shopping center walking past people first you yeah because he did he really skyrocketed he he went from it was really really tough for you to just get him out yeah to I remember like, I remember the day that you sent me the picture of him with his feet on (laughs) the railing in the elevator, because you taught him the behavior of put your feet on the railing in the elevator, as opposed (laughs) to put your feet on every single person that walks in this elevator. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So many questions that had to come (laughs) to play because you got to get him out of the apartment and outside. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that those, those clients that we look at it and go, oh, you know, there's all of this in there. They're motivated. They are motivated and they are going to be doing that training in that situation way more than if I was living with Simon in a house with a yard where I could come home and be tired and not take him out on a walk. I don't know. I don't know where he would be in his training if I had a, that different living situation. Yeah, totally. Because when you're yeah. allowed to not work on something, you don't. 100%. That's, <laughs> that's I don't, thing, right? I am not that person. I'm not that trainer who wakes up in the morning and says, oh, what kind of training am I going to work on today? Right? You're not. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> when I'm being my best self, I, I am that person. Yeah. But I totally get that most people aren't and most, most clients certainly are not. Right. And that's another, you know, that's just more empathy that you can bring to the table. All of it. All of it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I have really shifted my approach to, yes, I want, I want it to be good, positive training, low stress for the dog you know, reducing stress for the dog and for the person. But, you know, my focus has also shifted on, shifted to finding ways to meet that client's needs in a, in a practical and empathetic way, right? What is, what is realistic and practical for this client to do on the not perfect day that will still move them towards their goals. And you're good at it, friend. You are. Thank you. Thank you. So Lisa, where can people find you? Where and what areas are you serving right now? Because you have 
left the, well, not left it fully, but you are no longer in a shelter every day all the time. Um, <laughs> <offering> your, <laughs> you're able to help shelters other ways nowadays, but you are it out there hitting the pavement with real people and real dogs right now. So talk about that a little bit. Yes. yes. And it's so great. Um, much as I love working in shelters, I, I really missed my clients. There's, you know, I have, you know, I have some amazing clients and, uh, you know, they, they're fantastic. So yes, people can find me at serenitykanine.com. Uh, that's the word canine, not the acronym. Um, serenitykanine.com primarily um, for, for in-person lessons. I am serving in um, Washington state in the Kirkland, Redmond, area, which, you know, in Seattle is called the East Side and some North Seattle. But I do also offer a remote behavior helpline, which is a call for people who are maybe, whether they're working with another trainer um, and they just want some different ideas, or they're really struggling um, with something like the possibility that they may need to rehome their dog or, you know, even looking at something more serious, offering this service to anyone, anywhere, um, just to kind of help them take another look at these at these problems, see if we can come up with some new ideas and, you know, help them come up with the solutions or the answers that are right for them. I love it. Both really, really important services. And we I will make sure to link both Serenity Canine and the helpline information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lisa, for talking to me today about all the things, empathy, experience, your sweet dog, Simon. <laughs> Oh, Simon. <laughs> so much else. And Felix says to please let Simon know that they are not best friends. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. <laughs> Felix is just being funny. They're best yeah, friends. He's just better at that, Felix. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.